0: Well, you know, first day back from vacation, and not everything is working exactly like you might um, enjoy, mm-hmm, like you might expect. So, good morning to you. little stress here on my end, technologically, but I hope you're not experiencing any stress this morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, back from a week of vacation, very grateful for my... Colleague and associate, the producer of the show, Paul Perot, for handling things so admirably um, for a whole week. Thanks, Paul.
1: You're very, very welcome. Glad to have done it, but glad to have you back.
0: Thanks, man. Thanks, man. So, our growing your faith verse of the day comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Might be a really well-known verse. I want you to reconsider it this morning, um, taking very seriously the very first word, but. The first word is but. So this is a conditional promise. Um, But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. But those who trust in the Lord will soar high on wings like eagles. But those who trust in the Lord will run and not grow weary. But those who trust in the Lord will walk and not faint. There's There's a very significant conditional word at the beginning of this verse, and the word is but. And it's a big but. But those who trust in the Lord. So the promises of new strength and soaring high on eagle's wings and running without weariness and walking without fainting are absolutely dependent and founded upon the trust one has in the Lord. So, are you trusting in the Lord this morning? That is really the question. Are you trusting in the Lord this morning? How do you know? Well, are you counting on God to be God no matter what? Are you um, confident in Him uh, or in your own strength, uh, in your own power, in your own resources, in your own um, thinking through things? Are you counting on God to be God in the midst of whatever you're feeling or facing today? Are you believing and relying on God's reliability, not your own, on God's truthfulness and faithfulness and ability and strength, not your own? Or if you're really honest, are you actually in reality counting on your own plans, your own ideas, your own abilities, your own talents, your own planning, your own resources, your own strength of personality, your own perseverance, your own persuasiveness, yourself? Do you trust in the Lord today? Or if you're really honest, are you just trusting in yourself? And God's kind of like a side item. Because those who trust in the Lord, they're the ones who find new strength, soar on wings like eagles, run without growing weary, and walk without fainting. Trusting in the Lord means more than just believing there is a God, or even just believing that God is ultimately good, or God is going to grant you life eternal in heaven above trusting in the lord is a moment by moment, breath by breath, step by step, day in and day out of in the midst of all the realities of life, trusting god to be god and trusting that god is good and true and beautiful. Those who trust in the lord put their full faith and confidence in him. Let me give you a quick example here. So one of the things we did when we were in Canada this past week is we took the gondola in Banff. Now, there are a lot of folks who would say, oh, I just can't believe you did that. I mean, don't you know that like some, something like, I don't really know, I'm going to make up a number here, a couple of hundred people got stuck on that gondola overnight just a couple of months ago. Like, why would you put your trust? Why would you put your confidence in such a thing? All right, well, let me just say that I ride ski lifts and it's no different. In fact, this one's completely enclosed, so way more comfortable and um, pretty extraordinary. And they... They actually have these educational videos on your while you're standing in line. You know, you can watch the tens, you can see the tensile strength of that cable. And you have to decide, am I going to put my trust in those who built this? And the Swiss built it, and so I feel fairly confident in, uh, in all of that. And also, you know, there's a lot of other people doing it, but I'm not doing it just because other people are doing it. I absolutely fully enjoyed the ride without fear in perfect joy and peace because I trust in God. And frankly, if I had fallen to my death, you know, it's going to be, I'm going to be with Jesus. Right then, right there. So what happens when you put your trust in the Lord? Do you put your full faith and confidence in Him, and then do you just go for the ride and enjoy it without fear and perfect joy and peace? If you've ever watched an eagle soar, like uplifted by the winds that are driving others down, uplifted by the winds that are um, pushing, uh, pushing others around, like, That's the image that Isaiah gives us here. Put your trust in the Lord and let him renew your strength. Soar on wings like eagles. Run, yes, but without growing weary. Why? Because he's literally the wind beneath our wings. If you want to walk and not faint today, if you want to be lifted up by the same winds that are pressing others down, let me encourage you, trust in the Lord. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All righty, so this was a memory-making uh, trip. Uh, it really, I will tell you, um, too beautiful to be real. Have you ever looked at the picture of something and you say to yourself, you know what, I was there. I, I stood right there. But I look at the picture and it, it looks fake. It looks like I'm standing in front of a mural. It couldn't possibly be that beautiful, and yet it is. And so I want to encourage you to give glory Uh, to the Lord, and express your gratitude to Him, whatever it is that you are looking at today, because God is so good, and there is beauty in all of it. So I want you to give God glory and gratitude today. That's what I'm doing. So this memory-making trip that I just returned from um, really took me back to the summer of 1977. So in the summer of 1977, my parents took my sister and I on a -a once-in-a-lifetime family vacation to Glacier National Park. And we spent the majority of our time on the U.S., uh, obviously Glacier National Park, on the U.S. side of the border of the Rocky Mountains. But just on the other side of that border is one of the places that we visited in 1977. And I'll confess to you that um, although I remember the trip vividly, and I actually remember this building vividly, I couldn't have told you where it was, nor the name of it. So here are some things that I remember from when I was, you know, I was nine years old, 1977. I remember some very vivid things, like the size of the fireplaces in the lodges in Glacier National Park. I remember this open-air bus that we rode in, and I remember the wind. We had these, like, now I think back on them and you know, in the seventies our windbreakers were not what they are today. And I we had those little zip up ours were navy blue windbreakers with the little hood that you cinched around your face and I remember the wind. I remember these little the little chipmunks and I also remember the size of the trees. I remember crossing over the Canadian border and it just being this incredibly wide swath of of uh uh Deforested land. I wouldn't have called it that then. I just would have called it like a stripe in the forest. I remember standing in a fierce wind outside this hotel that looked like a gingerbread house um, on a mountain overlooking the most beautiful lake I'd ever seen. My mom was 40. And in every picture, um, you know, she's like got her jeans rolled up standing in the middle of a river. She's younger than I can now remember. There are also pictures of my dad, and in every picture, he's wearing what our family would regard as his signature plaid pants, and he's got a smile from ear to ear, full of life and joy. I am sure that in 1977, we couldn't afford that trip, but my parents worked hard. And um, I'm sure it was an extravagance beyond our budget, but I'm so grateful they made that sacrifice because my dad died of a heart attack at the age of 43 just a few years later. And that trip was the gift of a lifetime. It was the trip of a lifetime. And all of that made this week incredibly special. Jim and I joined my mom and my stepdad on a trip back to that iconic hotel on that windy hill in what I now know is Waterton Lakes, Canada. It's called the Prince of Wales, and it was just as beautiful as I remembered. We also returned to Lake Louise and made new memories in Banff. There are not words to describe the beauty. So I thought I would share some pictures with you if you're interested. So you can check out my Facebook page, which is linked from my website, CarmenLeBerge.com. Seriously, when I think about um, the goodness of God and the beauty of what he has made and the gift of life and the gift of family and the opportunities that God gives us to make memories that last a lifetime, I just want to encourage you today to take a trip back in time in your own memories. Maybe get out one of those old cellophane page photograph albums And thank God for the gift of memory and the gift of place and moments in time, snapshots, where he has revealed his glory in ways that are really beyond our describing. And then take a moment, maybe like the psalmist did, take a moment and try to describe them. And thank God for the beauty of his creation and the good gift of life. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at myfaithradio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well if you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to, you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio social media. And, you know, let's get the word out to others. All right. Back to the show. Again, thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at MyFaithRadio.com. Well, here on Mornings with Carmen, we're seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. And so this uh, story out of Jacksonville, Florida, likely one you've already heard over the weekend, but let me frame it for Those of you who have been, um, you know, like me, not paying attention to the news for the last several days, four people are dead in Jacksonville, Florida. One of them is um, the shooter responsible for the deaths of the other three. A 21-year-old young man, happens to be white. In this case, that matters. Um, Lived with his parents, has no criminal record, was armed with two legally purchased guns, one of them he had marked with a swastika. He targeted his victims at a Dollar General after um, probably seeking out um, victims on the campus of a black college there in Jacksonville. But a security guard um, asked him to leave. This young man um, arrived at the Dollar General parking lot where he shot 11 rounds at a black woman who was sitting in her car. Then he entered the store and sought out and killed two black men. There's no question that this was racially racially motivated because during his rampage, he actually took the time to text his dad where to find uh, his writings or what you will hear referred to as his manifesto, detailing how he, quote, hated black people um this young man um was detained on a mental health hold in 2017 but that is you know a fairly long time ago now in terms of uh the way we regard records and keep records and so his guns were legally purchased as an adult you're going to hear um that the governor of Florida has called the shooter a coward or a scumbag um Others have said this violence was, uh, quote, perpetuated by rhetoric and policies that, that target black people. Um, I don't think either of those descriptions actually accounts for the real problem here. And I think that as Christians, we have to be willing to point to the real problem. Um, and not, not to, in any way, um, remove the culpability or the responsibility of the individual. I'm not saying that. But this is an expression of evil. This is an expression of what happens in a human heart when jealousy, anger, rage, and ultimately murder are carried out. But the issue is evil. Um, We need to be not just praying that God would deliver us from evil, We need to be people who actively um, pursue the mind of Christ in, in every moment and seek to advance the gospel in this generation in every way. What we're dealing with is evil. This is spiritual warfare. Yes, it is played out on the human stage, but it is spiritual in nature. And you'll hear it described as senseless, and yes, if you understand the word senseless, um, to mean what it means. This is a person literally having lost the ability to make sense of things, to reason, to see things as they are. There's a distorted view of reality here where this individual, who happens to be white, sees other individuals who are black as less than himself, less than human less than worthy of um, living the life that he also was given to live. This is a person who was not in his right mind, certainly not in a righteous mind. Um, and it's impossible to stop evil with a weapon of the law or even law enforcement. You cannot make enough laws and you cannot um, enforce those laws with enough severity to bring evil into check. Don't believe me? Just exactly how long ago did God command, thou shalt not murder? That, that law has been on the books forever. He literally wrote it in stone thousands of years ago. He hand-delivered it through Moses. It is recorded more than once in the scriptures of the old and the new testaments. And so if we imagine that like we the people here in the United States of America in 2023 are going to come up with a law or a form of law enforcement that brings evil to heal you know like like heal like a dog uh, yeah we're we've lost our minds My friend, long before there was we the people, there were the people of God. And long before there was Lex Rex, you know, where the law is king, there was the King of Kings and the Law, capital L, given by him to his people. And it is a law of love that is now written on human hearts in the indelible blood of Christ. But that law is not written on every human heart, is it? The law of love, the law of the gospel is written on the hearts of those who confess Christ. And so when we imagine what it might be like to live in a culture where the color of your skin does not make someone else's skin crawl, we got to start seeing people, people, We've got to start seeing people for who they really are. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Racially motivated hate is particularly offensive to us. Um, Jesus says that God is equally offended by the hate that we harbor in our hearts for any number of reasons. It's not just about carrying out the kind of evil, murderous evil, perpetrated by this young white man in Florida against his black neighbors. The offense to God is one in the heart as well. All of it's an offense to God because into every person God has imprinted himself, his own image. So when we hate another person for any reason or for no reason at all, even without reason itself, even for things that are senseless, we are hating the God who made that person in his image. That is what makes these murders so offensive. Life is precious. It's a gift of God, and human life is precious above all other forms of life because it is into human beings that God imprinted his own image. Now, I recognize that may be a whole lot more than others around you are ready to discuss today in the face of the violent hate expressed in the murders in Jacksonville, but as a Christian as a person who is seeking to apprehend the mind of Christ on the matters of the day and bring the mind of Christ to bear on a day like today? That's what's got to be ruminating in our hearts and minds when we hear the person who committed these crimes as described as less than human. Because then we as a culture are doing the same thing to him that he did to the people, the precious people, whose lives he took. This was a man who took the lives of other human beings. Both are an offense to God. And so on every day when human sin mars the precious gift of life that Jesus died to give us, you and I as people who see it clearly, who have righteous minds and are in our right mind, we have to help the rest of the world. See what we see, and yes, we have to pray that God would deliver us from evil. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, what's uh, what's actually up for debate? What is actually up for debate? Just think about that for just a second. Um, you know, people might say about something, well, that's debatable. Well, from a biblical, redemptive, or gospel worldview, what is actually debatable? What's up for debate? And how are we as Christians to debate the things of the day? I'm obviously giving a little bit of a wink and a nod to the Republican debate that took place last week. Um, thought we would circle back around and unpack that a little bit. Um, so it's not debatable in terms of The basis of an argument, right? So the Bible is the foundation for every thought, every word, every deed, including how and for whom, like, we vote or otherwise participate in life together under whatever form of government we happen uh, to be living in. So um, how would you debate the issues of the day based on the infallible word of God? Like, that would be an interesting debate, So no matter where we live or when we live or under what form of government we happen to live, we live as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's who we are, even as we are also living in the United States of America or Canada or Mexico or Kenya or Australia, New Zealand. I could go through the list of the more than 100 countries where people are listening. So, we live and we engage and we vote if we have that privilege. We do so as citizens first of the kingdom of heaven, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And we do so as those through whom God is making his appeal to others be reconciled to God. So, when you think about the debates of the day, and when you think about specifically the debates being held among individuals who want to be. The candidate for a particular political party, for a particular office, in a particular election cycle, in a particular country, do you have the redemptive or gospel worldview as the basis for how you listen to and for how you debate how that debate went? Yeah, let's debate that next. Daniel Bennett will join us. This is Mornings with Carmen. Daniel Bennett is joining us from John Brown University in the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Good morning, Daniel.
1: Carmen, good morning. Sorry about that.
0: Hey, that's all right. That's all right. Um, I'm having technology issues on my end, so... It's, um, it's, it's just one of those mornings. Um, hey, what, let's start with this. What is a debate supposed to accomplish? And in an ideal world, what would happen during a debate in which, let's say, a particular political party was seeking to discern who its candidate should be for the presidency of the United States?
1: So some of your listeners might be familiar with different types of debates. Uh, they might have Children or grandchildren who are who are involved in high school debate teams where there's specific rules and structures governing who talks about what for how long, etc. That's the classical traditional definition. Political debates these days, and I say these days over the last, say, three decades or so, have evolved to a point where it was originally designed to provide clear options for voters about who they should or you know consider voting for or what kinds of qualities they might be looking for in a candidate. Lately, debates have really just become an opportunity for the candidates to talk past each other to try to test out some one-liners that they've been working on with their campaign team. And so if you're a real political junkie, someone who's really just interested in the rough and tumble world of politics, that's pretty entertaining. But for the rest of us who, you know, probably like 95% of the population it can get pretty exhausting.
0: So when you think about um, the debate that was staged last week, you think about the people that were on the debate stage and you think about the conversations maybe that you've had following that, you have some reflections to offer us. Um, this was the first of the GOP debates. Not everyone um, who has put themselves forward for, uh, for this position was on the stage, Um, But for those who were on the stage, maybe what are what are some of your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a clear difference between a couple of candidates who were uh, pretty critical and, uh, I guess, upset with the uh, tactics and post-election rhetoric of Donald Trump, who you mentioned, you know, wasn't at the debate. Uh, He is uh, by far the leader in the clubhouse (laughs) for uh, the Republican nomination at this point. So it was a little strange if he wasn't there. Uh, But for the candidates who, uh, you know, tried to distinguish themselves by saying, I don't think Donald Trump is the future of the party. We need to move on and we need to, you know, condemn that type of uh, those types of actions. They were pretty well, they were pretty roundedly dismissed by the other candidates on the stage who either defended Trump or perhaps uh, very subtly criticized, but then went back and said, but the real problem is I don't know, the media or Democrats or whoever it might be. Um, So even though Donald Trump was not there, and even though he is by far the leader for the nomination, even his rivals on the stage were not really interested in fatiguing him. Uh, They were more interested in trying to use some of the language that he's perfected to try to court those voters and maybe suggest it's time for a new person to carry that torch.
0: And when you think about um maybe just the Christian worldview conversation, that's obviously the one we're always trying to have. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess maybe the person on the stage most obviously not operating out of a Christian worldview, um, is Vivek Ramashwamy. But he's also the one who, you know, has has said that of himself, he he thinks or he perceives himself to be um uh operating out of quote the same values um can i just read you a paragraph so that we're kind of all on the same page on this particular issue so this is um this is from an interview that vivek ramashwamy gave to news nation the interview actually aired last week as well the same week as the um, as the debate so he's asked this question about being religious am i religious yes i am i'm a hindu i am not christian and we are a nation founded on Judeo-Christian values. But here is what I can say with confidence. And again, these are the words of, of a person who identifies as a Hindu, recognizes that the United States of America is established on Judeo-Christian values. And he says, I share those same values in common. I believe I live by those values more so than many self-proclaimed Christian politicians. Mm. Um, there's a lot there to unpack, yeah. but from a, world, from a worldview perspective, this notion that there are self-proclaimed Christian politicians, and then there is a person who identifies as a religious Hindu who comes right out and says, I'm not a Christian, it is able to distinguish the Judeo-Christian values upon which the country is established from people practicing a particular faith, in his case, the Hindu faith, or in the case of other politicians on the stage, um, quote-unquote Christian. So you see what I'm trying to suss out here? It's almost yeah. like he sees, he sees the difference between being a person of a particular religious faith and the um, Judeo-Christian values upon which the nation was founded. Can you unpack that from a Christian worldview? Yeah.
1: Yeah, this is a this is a lot to talk about. Um, you know, the first thing that came to mind as you're reading that is this doctrine of common grace, right? So we as Christians can find the imprints of God throughout our world and throughout our culture, uh, re- you know, regardless of whether those things have do- explicitly Christian, uh, uh, ve- explicitly Christian uh, stamps or anything like this, right? So someone like Vivek Ramaswamy is saying you know i I don't identify as a christian but here are the values that i hold dear and a lot of the christians i think listening would be like well sure i also believe in this and this and this and this and this so there's several different things that come to mind here first of all i think this is a great example of the value of pluralism in our country religious pluralism to say that you know someone who's very different from from you and me in terms of religious understanding of the world uh This is someone who nevertheless resonates uh, with a lot of the same foundational values that that Christians might. Um, It does show that we can recognize the foundations of our country were at least at least influenced heavily by the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, primarily because at the time that was the overwhelmingly dominant worldview among our founding generation. Uh, so even the ones who weren't particularly Christian, the deists, the Unitarians, et cetera, they would have been really familiar with these ideas. But then I think most interestingly with this, uh, his comment about self-professing Christian politicians, and I think this is where a lot of your listeners have be nodding their head and saying, yeah, you know, I think I think there's something to that. Something like 90 or 95 percent of the elected officials in Congress identify as a Christian. Uh, that is Overwhelmingly larger than the population at, uh, as a whole. Uh, so Arita believed that, and again, you're not looking into people's hearts, right? We can't, we can't really do that. But the numbers are just really, really off-kilter. And so I think he touched on something to say, you know, I, I'm very honest about who I am as a politician and as a candidate. Uh, and I have these values, whereas these professing Christians who say they're Christian, maybe for the sake of electoral gain, aren't going to be. Uh, committed to the same things that I am. So I think he's a really interesting candidate. He's obviously very young as far as presidential candidates go. uh, And that came up on the debate stage. But I think there's a reason he seems to be doing really, really well relative to some of these more established candidates like Chris Christie or or even the former vice president, Mike Pence.
0: All right, we're going to pivot here in our conversation in just a moment. And we're going to talk about people who may still identify as Christians, but no longer identify as a part of the Church. And so Mm -hmm. when we talk about um, being self-proclaimed as a Christian, what does that mean? What is the content of that? Is there something that's identifiable as a set of beliefs and practices that you could say, this is a Christian um, and this is not a Christian? How do we distinguish those things in Our conversations, how do we distinguish those things in the conversations of the day? Daniel Bennett and I are going to have a conversation about an individual whose name is Perry Bacon Jr. And Perry Bacon Jr. says, I left the church, but I now long for a church for the nuns, N O N E S. Um, And so he is a part of the some 40 million. American adults who have left the church in the last 25 years—in his case, just in the last handful of years—and um, we're going to talk about um, his his testimony because he has put it out there for all to read in the Washington Post, and it makes it possible for us to then discuss it here together. So, are you a part of a local worshiping community of believers? Are you a part of a church? Small C. Um, do you consider yourself a Christian? and yet maybe you are so by a definition that's different than the church would use. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever wondered where God is when you feel like you need him most? Do you recognize that he's closer than your next breath? Are you confident in that? Do you trust in that? Susie Larson has a brand new book, Closer Than Your Next Breath. Where is God when you need him most? And we're giving away 100 copies of it this month. So we want you to win yours at My Radio. Dot com. I want to encourage you right now that there is nothing like living in the fullness of the presence of God moment by moment. No matter what is going on, you can live as a person who is content in the presence of God. God is literally with you always, closer than your next breath, and we want you to experience that. So grab a copy of Closer Than Your Next Breath. You can sign up to win one at MyFaithRadio.com. Continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett. All right, Daniel, you and I have um, have both read this um, opinion piece, this very personal testimony piece um, in the Washington Post. The individual, uh, his name is Perry Bacon, Jr. Um, he grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. He grew up in a, uh, in, in a Christian family. Um, he talks about all kinds of Experiences as a young person that many people would resonate with. Our family went to church every Sunday. Members of the church stopped by during the week to get advice from my father. Um, I learned to drive uh, while he was going to midweek Bible studies. Before I left for college, the congregation passed a collection plate around and gave me money to congratulate and support me in my new venture. He talked about attending a church, um, increasingly non-denominational over time, um, but people who um, you know who we would whose names we would recognize. He says, I was quite involved. I acted as a chaperone when the church youth group went on the trip. I hosted a church-based small group at my house. Um, I even gave a sermon once. Um, but then he says this, I was never totally confident that there is one God who created the earth or that Jesus Christ was resurrected after he was killed. So I, I just want to pause right there and say, is this person who says this a Christian by the Bible's definition of what it means to be a follower of Christ.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly we talk about essentials and non-essentials of the faith. Holding, you know, the belief in the physical and, and bodily resurrection of Jesus is about as close to an essential as you can get in the Christian faith. I do think there's, I think as Christians, we always, to some extent, you know, many of us might express you know a struggling with doubt during seasons of our lives, right And so that's something I think we gotta suss out so if you if you're listening right now and you think, well, you know I've had some of these similar experiences where I think I believe, but then there's elements of doubt that creep in, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian, right? I think it's perfectly normal in our world to to doubt and to to wrestle. I mean, there's plenty of biblical examples of these things. Um, but if these are the beliefs that that bacon ultimately you know, arrived at then, but by those types of definitions, I, I don't think you would be considered a, an Orthodox small O, you know, Christian at that point.
0: So I want to leave that. I want to set that aside um, because he certainly considers himself a Christian. Um, and he goes on to say, um, belonging to a congregation seemed past tense essential Um and then he sort of acknowledges this very, I guess, uh, pluralistic or universal understanding. I thought religion, not just Christianity, but also other faiths such as Judaism and Islam, pushed people toward better values. And then he talks about people who he has admired, um, and they were Christians. Um, and then the, he gets into this conversation about his experience of, uh, of local church and eventually uh, arrives at sort of why he departed from it. Some of it you would describe as expressly um, situations where the church has standards that he does not like, and, um, and they affect uh, people who are practicing particular um, lifestyle uh, expressions mm-hmm. that are not consistent mm-hmm. with what the church um, understands from Scripture to be to be righteous in terms of leadership. So, and then he says um, he, he, that his experience, he finds out, is typical. Most people who disaffiliate or leave the church cite lots of precipitating factors, not just one. Um, it's a fade away more than a dramatic break, which is what he describes. He describes this like fading away. And then right. And then we arrive at Charlotte. Charlotte is a three-year-old who is getting more inquisitive every day. So we have a father who is reconsidering the importance of church because he has a child and he wants to raise that child to be a person with a strong sense of good values. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
1: I mean, there's so much in there. I, I, I think that the yearning for community and this, this idea that there's something you know aching inside us to be part of a larger body. Uh, whether that is a church community for a lot of people, uh, or just some type of organization where you have some sense of shared or collective meaning, uh, that is, you know, basic to who we are. We're we're meant to be in community with one another, and so I think Bacon hits the nail on the head there, saying, "Look, even though I had these doubts, you know, I, I just I miss this notion of community and the congregational life." Um, but as you're talking about his daughter. And the fact that, you know, as a a child, she is more inquisitive and starting to ask questions that, you know, most of us have probably become calloused to in our lives. Uh, It reminded me of the book by Michelle Margolis, who's a social scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, From Politics to the Pews, where she's articulating this this notion of a life cycle theory of religious attendance, where people may disaffiliate or essentially stop uh, attending at some point in their lives, young lives. And then when they have children, they might decide, you know what, we're gonna go back to church. And the point of her book is that they choose churches based on their political ideals rather than theological ones. Um, But there is this interesting notion and I think it's gonna be fascinating to watch in the years ahead as this younger generation who are disaffiliating at a higher rate than older generations, and maybe who are expressing more skepticism with traditional religion, Are they going to end up back at a church, traditionally speaking, because they think it's a place for their children to find some sort of values or foundational understandings of the world, even though they themselves may not necessarily believe it? So there's a lot going on here, uh, but but those are a couple of things that immediately jump to mind.
0: Yeah, I like that he says, I know I could be a member of a congregation if I really wanted to. I could attend a Christian church on Sundays and teach my daughter about other beliefs the rest of the week. Like, there Uh, is a disintegrated, and when I use that term, like a non—he's not fully integrated as a secularist because he has this interest in his daughter knowing about the Christian faith and knowing about the God of the Bible and knowing about the community of God's people— but he's also really clear that he is going to teach her, quote, other beliefs the rest of the week. I think, you know, here's, here's one of the things I appreciate. He's really honest. And I think this is going on in a lot of families where the adults aren't being quite this honest about the fact mm-hmm. that they take their kids to church for particular reasons. But in reality, by the living of their life, by what they're doing, by what they're saying, they're actually teaching their children a whole different set of values the rest of the week. I just think this guy's being yeah. honest about it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why it's resonating with so many readers, particularly of his uh, generation. And, you know, he's a he's a columnist or he's a he, he's been he's appeared in some national publications, The Washington Post most recently. But he's written for 538, the research website in the past. Uh, so he's certainly, you know, educated, professional, living in a big city. And a lot of his neighbors are probably looking at this as almost a sort of a curiosity. They're like, "Oh, you're actually interested in attending church, and maybe maybe it'll spike some interest in their lives." Be like, "Well, I remember attending church when I was a kid. It was, I look back on it with some maybe some frustration, but also some, you know, genuine longing for those days of you know sitting in Sunday school class and you know looking at the felt on the boards or anything like this." Uh, so yeah, I think that's why it's resonating. Um, but, but you're right. He's by far, he's, he's nowhere nearly, you know, the only person expressing these types of belief systems. And a lot of research these days focuses on who the nuns are. I mean, Ryan Burge is kind of leading on this. There's, you know, a lot of books on and articles on, you know, are the nuns, you know, you know, from a certain socioeconomic group, how many are atheists versus agnostics versus just nothings in particular. And Not only is this interesting from a sociological perspective, but as Christians, it gives us a totally different understanding of what our evangelism has to look like in terms of who are we talking to? Are we talking to the folks who say, uh, well, I don't believe God is real, and uh, here's all the science to back it up, right? Maybe 1990s era apologetics. Or are the people that we're going to be evangelizing to people like Perry Bacon, who have these Experiences that are largely positive, uh, and are generally open to certain elements of our faith, and so that that that's a huge uh, opportunity for Christians. I think we just need to recognize what it is. so good,
0: Daniel. Thank you as always. Um, we appreciate our conversations with you. Let's keep uh, let's keep tilling this soil, particularly. Uh, this this conversation about the opportunity among these 40 million people who are now, quote-unquote, de-churched. That's Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, circling back around to where we started this conversation, are you trusting in the Lord today? Those who trust in the Lord... That's the condition that Isaiah lays out. Those who trust in the Lord. Are you trusting in the Lord today? I hope so. That's where you will find new strength. That is how you will soar high on wings like eagles uh, in the midst of the wind that is pressing against and oppressing others. That's how you will run and not grow weary. It's how you will walk by faith and not faint in the midst of the days in which we live. That but at the beginning of Isaiah 40 verse 31 is a big but those who trust in the Lord. Are you trusting in the Lord today? I hope so. We've got another hour together next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks!